Hey out there, everybody, and welcome to Caffeination 540, the Under the Hood edition here at the Caffeination Podcast. Hopefully everybody out there is having a fantastic day, night, or evening whenever you happen to be sticking this show in your ears. If you are looking for this show or any of its other recorded brethren, you can find them lovingly listed and nestled over at www.caffination.com. That's caffeination.com. If you are looking for to get into contact with us, my name is Paul, and you can email me at paul at caffeination.com. You can find me at Twitter at caffeination, and you can uh, dial our listener line at... <laughs> One second, I should have it memorized by now. You can dial the listener line at 215-240-1319. All right, we've uh, gotten a couple emails recently, so I think it's about time to start uh, funneling some of them into the uh, into the actual show. And this is going to be a show that's slightly different than some of our other ones. There's not as much tech stuff, but a lot of science stuff. So it's kind of fun to, to play around in all different uh, areas there. So hopefully this show is going to be a little bit shorter than the previous couple, because that's one thing I did notice, that it was uh, running a little long-winded and for somebody who just came back from a nice long nap might not be the best way to be (laughs) all right once more this is the uh, under the hood edition because i did a ton of work under the hood of the caffeination website and i remember if you remember on the past couple episodes i said it was kind of a bear getting itunes working again now we had had a listing in itunes since the podcasting directory actually opened and they only just shuttered our particular listing last year. I don't know why, but the original listing for the Caffeination was still alive. So I had to sort through some stuff with their wonderful tech support, and believe it or not, uh, even though it's a free service, they were incredibly attentive. So the fine folks over at Apple really sorted it out, and I, I'm incredibly grateful to the people over there. Uh, so if you are looking for us on iTunes, you can now find us on iTunes. It's kind of wonderful. <laughs> It's that's the way it should be. The same thing with Google Podcasts, Blueberry, and any of the other directories that I've found so far. We seem to be listed in most, if not all of them. If there's one that I'm missing, please feel free to let me know at caffeination at gmail.com or paul at caffeination.com. So they all go to the same place. It's okay. Uh, I think I said that uh, you can find all of our social stuff over at the website as well as a whole bunch of other things. So there's one other new thing that we have listed on the website right now uh, because we're still in the uh, infancy of the new version of the site. Uh, we're still trying to figure out how we're going to end up paying for all this because my wife is wonderful, but my wife is not that wonderful that she's going to sit there and say, hey, yeah, sure, keep doing the, what you're doing and we'll just keep funneling out all the money to do it. But <laughs> So one of the things I'd like to try and do is either start a Patreon or do the donate button. So I got the donate button up and working. It's actually only on the homepage for right now. I don't want to beat people over the head with the give me money, give me money, because that's not really how you do. Uh, and that's never really how we've been here at the Caffeination Podcast. So if you feel uh, if you feel that you are able, uh, I would be incredibly grateful if you could donate. If you are not, or if you think, hey, this is a free medium, you're giving it away, then that's perfectly fine as well. Uh, we are going to be experimenting with Patreon down the road as soon as I can find out what kind of uh, content that I can create that you will only be able to find on the Patreon side of things, so the patron side, rather. Um, so that's one of the things that we're we're currently working on but geek life starting the geek cruft section here at the caffeination podcast now for those of you who may not know cruft is a word that means detris it's stuff that's randomly littered about and geeks can be geeky about any old thing if you've noticed on 
the past couple episodes, we've geeked out about anthropology, archaeology, and a whole bunch of other wonderful topics. One of the uh, things that we're going to be geeking out on today is biology, and uh, we have some other fun things, including movies and Google and... (laughs) A whole bunch and litany of topics in the Greek Geek Cruft section. But the first thing is my geek life. What is happening in geek life? The curious mix of sponsors that we previously had were all through various affiliations that we no longer had. So I'm trying to sort that out. If anybody has any information about that kind of stuff, please feel free to shoot it my way. The next thing is we are actually prepping for travel. Next week is a travel week here at the Caffeination Podcast. So if you... uh, have any tips for how a geek should fly around with all of his gear right now that would also be greatly appreciated uh, i'm trying not to uh overly burden the uh the stuff that we had going but uh still uh i am heading out to new mexico to visit my parents it's going to be a wonderful trip cannot wait to do it the only thing i'm a little bit worried about is tsa and trying to get through it with uh, any random bits of tech that uh, i or the kids or my wife may end up having on our person so we'll see uh how that all works out and i'll let you know either two shows from now because i think i'm actually going to have a show that's all lined up and ready to go for next week so you're not going to notice that i'm not here all right next little thing that we got for you here is one of my favorite podcasts the astonishing legends podcast over at astonishinglegends.com actually had a series on archaeology so not only was i wrapped with attention like i usually am But I was sitting there listening to these guys talk about one of my all-time favorite subjects. This, it's it's one of the the weird little cross sections that uh, you find yourself in every once in a while in the potosphere. So uh, they were actually discussing Gobleki Tepe. That is a yeah I know God bless you, but that is a the most ancient temple burial site ever found on the planet. Yes, you heard me correctly. It is the most ancient site, the original temple, as far as anyone can tell you. Uh, since that I work at Temple, it was kind of a, a, a little bit of a double entendre in my ear. But still, um, it, it's basically, it predates the current time by roughly ten to 11,000 years. So uh, I'm going to only use what uh, they had. Uh, they quoted Charles C. Mann from National Geographic. Discovering, discovering the hunter-gatherers had constructed Gobleki Tempe was like finding someone had built a 747 in a basement with an exacto knife. So this is basically breaking down. Now, they had did a three-part episode on this, and I am not going to break down six-plus hours of content. Now, this is a long-form podcast, if you haven't figured that out, and I love it. It They cover all bits of Esoterica, and they do it really, really, really well. So I highly suggest you head on over there and give them a listen. Make sure you check which episode is currently up, because they might be halfway through a current topic. They have a really wonderful schedule, so they do three weeks on, one week off, uh, releasing one episode at a time. They have a band of merry men and women that are helping them, the Astonishing Research Corps. So as they are going into uh, topics such as the Bermuda Triangle and uh, some of the other things that they've uh, looked into, the Mary Celeste, um, Greyfriars Kirkyard, uh, Gobleki Tempe, and, and some of the other things, including Amelia Earhart. As they go into each one of these topics, they have people that are experts in the area or they have people who are experts in researching and finding other experts in the area that are digging through tons of Internet places 
to find only the best in research, and they share it with uh, the two hosts, and then they share it with everybody whose ears they are currently sitting in. So this is my favorite drive time podcast because I can one podcast can last me anywhere from one to three days. So it's one of those things where uh, traffic stinks for everybody, and I love being able to just sit right back and hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip where they're wandering through the Bermuda Triangle and actually trying to, to pin together all the different pieces of what the Mothman prophecies actually were. Uh, and when they're actually discussing Skinwalker Ranch and a whole bunch of other really crazy, off, awesome topics. But this particular topic, I know that's not what I came to talk to you about, came to talk to you about the draft. This particular topic, the the ancient temple, is one of the ones that I was just, I was wrapped with attention because they're basically saying that through some research of theirs and a whole ton of other sources that they pulled together, uh, this is one of the, if not the, earliest ever construction by humans on the planet. It's located in the Fertile Crescent area, the area around the Tigris and the Euphrates River in uh, what is now Syria, Jordan, Israel, Palestine, that whole uh, Iran and Iraq, that whole swath of area right now. Um, but it was very, very, very different 11,000 years ago. And the uh, people at that time, this is 6,000 years before the invention of writing, 4,000 years before the invention of the wheel. I may have gotten those two numbers ba uh, backwards, but that's okay. Um, you kind of get the understanding that the only thing that we have here, the only information we have is, is the monoliths that these things have actually put, been put together as. So these things, it's a massive site. These are 16-ton megalith structures that look like T's with people actually carved into them. They're, they're limestone blocks that have been carved painstakingly out of the side of a mountain with flint tools by hunter-gatherer societies. There is no evidence that anyone actually lived on the site in, in any kind of long-form uh, process. And if you look at the... the period in which the site was actually used and inhabited of some sort, it was inhabited over several hundred, if not thousands of years. This is incredible. And the length and the breadth that they actually go into uh, kind of picking apart this particular topic is unbelievable. So I highly suggest you head on over to Astonishing Legends. Now, this is not their latest episode. This is a couple episodes back. I'm still playing catch up because I... Uh, dropped off the map while I was starting my own podcast back up. But you just head on over there and you I guarantee you this is a podcast that will suck you right in and it just you feel like you're one of the crew on some kind of mad dash through history. So it, it, it's a really awesome listen. So I highly suggest you head on over there and listen to these guys. All right, uh, the next little thing that we got for you here is AMC A-List. It's a new service that AMC is actually coming out with. Now, if you're unfamiliar with, they have one called Stubbs. Now, what Stubbs is, is you pay $12 per year, and then any um, stuff that you buy, anything from tickets to um, tickets to movie uh paraphernalia to stuff that's in their store to food to anything any stuff that you buy throughout throughout the entire year earns you points points gets you money off you know you can kind of understand the same thing now there is 
Now, it, it's wonderful because you also get stuff like $5 Ticket Tuesdays. You you can get uh, to the head of the line, which on really, really busy movie days is actually worth more than the rest of the stuff combined. But if you ever go to the movies, it's one of those things that kind of pays for itself after a couple months of use. Well, they just came out with this thing called A-List. Now, I've noticed a lot of places are doing the pay-for-privilege option right now. So you can see up to three movies a week for $19.95 a month. Now, if you are a single person, this is a phenomenal deal. However, if you start factoring in, hey, wait a minute. If I have kids, if I have a significant other, then I'm paying $40 a month because there is no family plan. And then three month, three movies a month, or three movies rather a week, is, is a rather large time commitment that you're spending at their theater. <laughs> it's one of those things that I keep seeing promoted, I keep seeing uh, shared out there is a really, really good deal, but I haven't seen a lot of, you know, I've seen one or two people who criticize it, but I haven't seen the the kind of uproar that I was kind of expecting to see with this kind of... Uh, pricing scheme. I'm not sure if down the road they're going to look at a family option where maybe it's $45 a month or $50 a month and then you can see you know, uh, X number of movies for the month. But as it is right now there's no way I'm going to spend $80 a month just so that my family can see some movies. I mean I'd love to just be able to watch the maybe two or three movies that would come out per month that I would like, but there's no way I'm going to watch 15 or 16 movies a month <laughs> that that could potentially, you know, even out the, the cost share here. I don't know about anybody else, but that's one of the things that I see out there, and I'm like, you know what, the privilege that you're asking people to pay for is not exactly uh, worthwhile. So, all right, next little thing that we got for you here. I know we're bouncing all over the place here, and this is unusual for the caffeination. I mean, usually we're really rigid and put together. So, uh, <laughs> all right, Google has been fined, and take your pinky and put it to the side of your mouth, $5 billion. Yes, that is a whole lot of uh, Android Oreos, and it's all because of the fact that they are illegally, according to the EU, bundling the search and their uh, browser with Android. Now, Google has responded. I've linked to the original court decision. I'm not linking to anybody else's analysis because I'm going to give you the best analysis that you're ever going to hear. It's obviously the most thought through, obviously the most professional, and you are quite simply not going to find a better analysis. That's a lot of money. And in addition to the fact that it's a lot of money, you're also going to find out that Google has said, well, you know, if we have to pay pinky to the side of the mouth, $5 billion, then Android's going to stop being free. Now, you might not think Android's free, but as it is right now, you can download whatever stock operating system you want and throw it on your Android phone. There is, unless your carrier actually restricts you, there is no thing within the OS itself which actually locks you into using certain apps. If this goes through, then it's going to be a lot more difficult to actually get the app set up correctly. It's going to be one of those things where if you download uh, something, it's not going to come with Chrome. It's not going to come with Google set as your default search provider, which not a lot of people have issues with. But it, it's it's one of those things where I just want it to work. And I wonder if they're taking a look at Apple at the same point in time, because Apple has Safari in there. Apple has default searches set. I mean, I don't know, actually. I haven't actually set up an iPhone in a couple years, so uh, I, I don't know if you have a default search set. But I do know that they do have a, a default uh, 
browser in there, and they have a whole bunch of other default software on both the uh, the phone and the computer. So I don't know how Google is getting away, or Apple rather, is getting away with this, and Google isn't. So, I mean, it's one of those things where whenever I'm talking about this particular project and I say, okay, and then perhaps the name of the the company that we were discussing, I have to watch out because directly over the laptop that's currently uh, recording the Caffeination podcast, I do have a Google Home Mini. So <laughs> it, it's I, I just have to be aware because they are listening to me and I'm not sure if I'm going to get zapped through that thing or, you know, who knows. But it's one of those stories that we really kind of have to pay attention to. I remember uh, back in the early 2000s, Microsoft was also served with a very similar lawsuit, and there was a lot of hand-wringing back and forth. They said you couldn't bundle Internet Explorer. And then that not just that, but you couldn't bundle Internet Explorer and make everybody go through your particular search provider. So I understand that. That's, that's something that's okay. I, I can get it. But... Internet Explorer was the browser that everybody used in order to download Netscape. Internet Explorer was the browser that everybody used to download any other browser. So it didn't really seem to hurt anybody. And especially now that Microsoft Edge is actually a decent browser. I mean, the, the fact that they give you multiple different options is one of the ways that Microsoft is getting around it. But I'd be curious to see how Google is going to actually deal with this down the road. So right now we're still in the hand-wringing stage, and we haven't quite yet come to the uh, realization that, okay, you know what? The antitrust measures that you have violated are probably in there for a very good reason. And you might have the whole do no evil or don't be evil as your company slogan. I should probably remember that one. I'm pretty sure it's do no, don't be evil. But uh, I'm pretty sure that as that is your company slogan, it doesn't mean that you actually follow it. You're still a capitalistic company and you're still trying to look out for number one and that's the people up at the top. So, all right, moving right along, instead of $5 billion, we now have one of my absolute favorite subjects on the planet, and that is the master, J.R.R. Tolkien. Yes, he is my absolute favorite author. I have read Lord of the Rings an embarrassing number of times. I've read The Hobbit even more so. I've read The Hobbit in, like, third grade, and I voraciously uh, inhaled it. <laughs> And uh, when the, we actually read it in ninth grade, it, it, I had already read it like six or seven times by that point. Um, I loved reading. I still do. But I'd, I don't read nearly the same clip as I used to. I actually kind of savor each book as opposed to seeing if I can just get it to hit the back of my throat. Um, but J.R.R. Tolkien and artifacts are being not him. <laughs> that would be even weird because he died in 1973. But uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, massive collection and his vast career, both as a scholar and as an author and as a painter, is currently on ex exhibition at Oxford uh, in time for a new uh, book to actually come out. Now, the book that's being pushed forward is actually a, you know, has samples of his art, has samples of some of the notes and things like that. So the official catalog for this is called Tolkien, the maker of Middle Earth or maker of Middle Earth, has a color reproduction of both letters, official personal photographs, notes, manuscripts. What this basically means is it's another book that I'm going to have to buy down the road. As I look over to the uh, shelf that has all my archaeology, anthropology, and uh, Tolkien books, <laughs> I have the Tolkien bestiary, J.R.R. Tolkien, art, authist and art, artist and illustrator, Tolkien's ring, 
uh, Tolkien. Oh wait, I can't even see the title on that one. It's incredibly tiny, but it has Tolkien in it, and that's the only big word on it. So, and that's in addition to at least two different copies of the trilogy, which is actually six books, and at least three different copies of The Hobbit, uh, two of the Silmarillion, and um, random other bits and bobs of the unfinished tales and things like that. So, but uh, one of my absolute favorite ones that I was reading to my kids is Roverandum. It's a story he wrote for his children that uh, it was about a little lost toy, um, but all of that aside, uh, if you've never seen the master's paintings, that alone is worth getting this book and getting these, or if you're in England, actually visiting the, the exhibit at Oxford. This is one of those things that I really kind of hope that travels around. Uh, in Philadelphia, we have something called the Franklin Institute, and it's the local science museum that has all kinds of crazy cool stuff that's stuffed into it. Um, but they do revolving ex- exhibitions, so we have uh, things like you know mummies from Egypt. Uh, Cleopatra had an exhibit. I know both two Egypt Egyptian things. We had Body Worlds come through there. There's a bunch of uh, these exhibits that the museum actually you know caters to. So I would hope that maybe they have you know like Tolkien uh, Master of Middle Earth or something come through. If that's the case. I'll probably be one of the first or second in line because I just I I can't I can't even it it's it's one of those things where it's both memories from childhood it's the penultimate version of a storyteller that you can be in my book the man didn't just write stories he basically told the history of a world that didn't exist yet so he had to like you know with the carl sagan in order to bake an apple pie first you must create the universe tolkien did that with fantasy writing he he's not only one of the first people to ever do world building but he built the world then he wrote a story that took place in it and then he wrote several other stories that also took place in it. And it's funny because when you look at The Hobbit, it actually looks a little bit out of place compared to the rest of them because he wrote The Hobbit while he was still working on the actual world that was around it. So The Hobbit was written in, and published rather in uh, 1937. That was also a bedtime story. Um, the fun, funny little uh, bit of trivia, not funny unfortunately because it does deal with the time he died, but... Uh, in Lord of the Rings, the poem that describes the different rings of power has four very prominent numbers in it, one, nine, seven, and three. One ring to rule them all, one ring to bind them. Uh, you have the three rings for the Elven Kings, you have the nine rings for Mortal Ben, doomed to die, and you have seven for the Dwarf Lords in their Halls of Stone. Well, you have those four numbers. The first book was written in 1937, 1973. Then the Master died in 1973, 1973. So, it's just one of those weird little coincidences that pops up. Thought I'd share it with the group. Alright, moving right along, the next little thing that we got for you here is a lot of species are being found and mixed around. So currently, here in the United States, we have a tick problem, and specifically in New Jersey, it's one of the... uh, (laughs) Unfortunately, there's a new species of invasive tick that has arrived, and it carries with it a whole new uh, set of diseases. So currently, there's a... uh, an infestation of something called the East Asian tick that has a wonderful new disease that is actually uh, 
attached to it. It's called SFTS. Now, unfortunately, SFTS doesn't have a really cool name like Lyme's disease or something like that because that's the disease that uh, the deer tick tarry, carries. Uh, so, you know, now when you're looking for the East Asian tick, which looks really funky compared to the rest of them, and also doesn't die when it's exposed to massive amounts of carbon dioxide, so it's a much hardier tick. Uh, I, I'm willing to bet, though, if you pull it out of your skin, stick it on the ground, and light it on fire, it'll still die. Because when we find ticks that that doesn't work with, then we have a real issue because they might get upset that we tried to light them on fire. So, unfortunately, the, the symptoms of this disease, SFTS, includes fever, fatigue, chilled, he headaches, nausea, muscle pain, diarrhea, vomiting, abdominal pain, disease of the lymph nodes, conjunctival congestion, and in some cases it can actually lead to death. So, much unlike Lyme disease, this is significantly more... Uh, serious. It's not that Lyme's disease isn't serious, it's that it's more of a prolonged illness. This is just just scary. <laughs> There's not really much that you can say beyond that. All right, next little species that we're going to talk about is actually a brand new kind of venomous snake and yes it was found in Australia because that's where everything that's venomous seems to end up or seems to originate. Now, I'm unsure, and I looked for a couple different sources on this, but uh, they all seem to name the snake as a bandy-bandy snake. Now, I'm not sure if that's just a nickname associated with the snakes that have uh, black and white bands on them. It's a water snake that is also slightly terrestrial, so it can go on ground a little bit. But the bandy-bandy turned out to be a new species, visually and genetically distinct from those found on the eastern coast and parts of the interior. So this particular snake is incredibly endangered because it is only found near a bauxite mine. I'm not even sure exactly what that is. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's a brand new venomous species. So while I'm not normally... Now, if you know the difference between venomous and poisonous, venomous is something that bites you, and poisonous is something that you eat. So where you bite... <laughs> All right, just to let you know. Now, there's five new snakes that have been found in Ecuador. All of these eat snails. So uh, anytime we, we start finding large versions of fauna, uh, it, it's kind of cool to me because it, it's one of those things where you're like, wow, you know, the humans have been pretty much on every square foot of the planet, on the, every terrestrial square foot of the planet, but they haven't really done a good job in uh, shepherding those those square feet the in in more ways than one it's just kind of like we stumble around until we find something that we can exploit so when we find large versions of fauna that have not been but not been previously uh found or previously uh understood it's really cool when people actually take the you know the time and uh, start, you know, looking down around your feet, looking up in the, in the trees and seeing what's there. The more of these things that we catalog, the less of these things that we're going to miss and the less of the uh, habitat that's surrounding them that's going to get destroyed without us ever knowing about them. I mean, the, there's an article that we're going to be talking about next that actually talks about some of the most horrible invasive species on the planet. And there's some of the things that were in there. Now, normally I would not be sharing... Hey, you know, there's a, you know, the top ten scariest invasive species on the planet, but uh, the, the, you know, there's 
there's kind of a, a little bit of a twist to this one. Ten of the most scariest endangered species, or uh, not endangered, invasive species on the planet. So the first one is the walking catfish, for reasons that, you know, it's native to Southeast Asia and it can go over land, so it can actually help invade other areas. The next one is the common carp. Now the weird part about the common carp that I found is that it is both invasive and endangered. So it's endangered in the wild. These massive fish are almost fish to extinction in their natural habitat. However, they're introduced because they're incredibly easy to keep. So they're introduced into, you know, ponds and other things like that. They end up tearing up the bottom of the actual ponds, lakes, and riverways that they actually swim in. And the other issue with them is that as they feed, what when they excrete, they don't actually end up digesting everything completely, so their excrement rots, and that causes algae blooms, which is just nasty all over the place. And it explains why these fish feed off of the massive amounts of uh, carrion and other stuff that gets uh, left around in the uh, hydroelectric dams. Here in Philadelphia, we have a bunch of different hydroelectric electric dams on one of the smaller rivers, the Schuylkill River. And uh, on one of the tours that I went on, they said, yeah, fishing's not allowed here, and the fish seem to know it, because as you look down, uh, and as we all look down, somebody's uh, hard hat fell off, and it fell down and clocked one of the fish, but you couldn't see the water. That's how many fish there were. And these fish were massive. They were six feet long, roughly two meters long, these fish. And they said that they were weighing in when they when they had to pull them out of the uh, of the some of the grates or stuff like that. They would end up weighing in at, you know, well over 150 pounds. And <laughs> just that level of fish, that size of fish, you know, all just, you know, collecting around, helping to, to clean out the river, but at the same point in time uh, destroying the ecosystem that surrounds it and destroying, uh, you know, through both uh, primary means as they're rooting around and destroying the uh, plants that are, you know, growing from the bottom, but also through secondary means because the algae that feasts on their excrement is killing off everything else through uh, a lack of uh, sunlight getting through. So that's just one of the crazy things. The next thing is a mosquito fish, tiny little fish that actually looks like it belongs in a uh, tropical fish tank. The Nile perch, similar to the carp in that it's a massive species. The, the issue with the Nile... <laughs> carp and the one picture that they have up on the page if you have a chance you should head on over there and check it out it's 440 pounds of nasty looking fish now when they were introduced into lake victoria in africa in 1962 in 1981 over 300 local species were already extinct so they they outcompeted things to that level within 20 years the next thing is one of the th is one of the ones that I was incredibly surprised about. I was surprised about the carp, but I could kind of understand it just because of their appetite and the amount of this the size that they can get to. Uh, but the next one kind of uh, surprised me a lot, and that was brown trout. Brown trout outcompete other trout, and then when there's other trout that are around that they can't outcompete, they interbreed with them. So. It's whether they beat you or they join you. Uh, the biodiversity in general, when brown trout are around and they're not natively found in your area, goes steadily downwards. The same thing is also said for rainbow trout and largemouth bass. The difference between 
the brown trout, rainbow rainbow trout, and largemouth bass from the rest of the list is that these are all sport fish and that they are actively farmed. And when you actively farm something, you're decreasing the... the, uh, the genetic diversity of, of a population, which can lead to uh, issues like the rainbow trout currently have, and they actually suffer from this weird disease that uh, it's it infects both salmon and rainbow trout. So it's uh, and now it's actually starting to spread onto other species. It's called the whirling disease. I don't know what it is, but since I like fishing, I'm going to learn what a whirling disease is and what kind of uh, signs to look for and what kind of the parasite is. And then I'm going to really make sure that I double and triple check any fish I bring home because my wife sure as heck doesn't want a parasite in the food. All right, next thing is tilapia, Mozambique tilapia. Then the every, everyone... <laughs> understands this one because there was a big media push about it but the northern snakehead yet another fish from africa which is really nasty it has a mouth that looks a little bit like predator so it has a mouth then when it opens up it has a secondary mouth that comes out and chews on you a little bit more Um, this fish can also survive out of water for extended periods of time and can actually use its front fins and walk from place to place as well And then last, but most certainly not least, this is a lionfish. A lionfish is a gorgeous fish that is uh, used in saltwater aquariums all over the the planet. However, they have long fins equipped with venomous spikes, and they have an insatiable appetite. So not only are they a top-level predator... But they will, and they can eat anything which actually fits in their mouth. They actually also cause a significant decline in the biodiversity, and they're incredibly dangerous to remove from the area because of the venomous spikes. So, there's some areas that have started putting some of these different fish on. Uh, menus, there's other areas where they've uh, just started trying to introduce parasites to take them out. Now let's talk about a good fish. Well, not a fish at all, but actually a shark. There's a new species of shark that has actually been found, and it is named after a pioneering marine biologist. Her name is Eugenie Clark, and this new shark is Squalus clarke. So it's also known as Genie's dogfish. It's a tiny, or rather it's a mid-sized deep water shark, and uh, the issue with some of the deep water sharks and trying to determine one from the other and determine which one's a new species is that since they all face the same environmental pressures, they all end up looking incredibly similar. So this fish, in order for it to actually be identified as a brand new species, they had to actually take DNA samples. So Genie was apparently a tireless crusader for sharks and that, you know, they're, they're not as bad as everybody seems to think that they are. And, you know, they have a place on the planet. They have a, a really, it's not just that they have a place, but they have a, a job to do and that they are, she was one of the first people to ever discover that not all sharks had to swim constantly in order to actually breathe. So she was a pioneer in marine biology, was not only one of the first female uh, marine biologists, but was one of the first and leading marine biologists when it came to sharks. So this fact that unfortunately she passed, but uh, this shark is named after her is a massive honor and awesome as well. 
All right. The last little thing we have for you here at the end of the Geekcraft section is which animal is really the biggest threat to us? So this one's from over at gizmodo.com. I thought this was pretty funny because they actually asked a whole bunch of different wildlife experts, everybody from uh, Associate Professor of Wildlife and Fish Conservation, Brian Todd, to Aquatic Biology at Swansea, Rory Wilson, uh, Professor Emeritus of Psychology at University of Washington, Dave Barash. Uh, and then they also did uh, Madhushnadan Kati. He's Associate Professor of uh, Forestry and Environment Resources Department at NC State. And, uh, yeah. So they asked each one of these people, what is the most dangerous animal on the planet? Everybody agreed that it was humans. But after humans, it was kind of funny to see the the different <laughs> – if you ask five af- academics a question, you're going to get six different opinions. That's just a fact in and of itself. But uh, to run down the list really quickly in case you really want to head on over there and read the full uh, article, uh, Dave Barash actually said that the most dangerous animal on the planet is cows. So cows kill <laughs> 20 people per year. Uh, sorry, it says snark, sharks and venomous snakes kill about one American per year. Cows kill more than 20. So bees, however, are in second place, according to him. Uh, now, the next little thing this, the, we have, Rory Wilson said that, you know, if you're talking, this is all incredibly uh, localized. So if you're talking about Myanmar, Myanmar has people who are dying from snake bites every day. So 320 people per day die from my, uh, snake bite in Myanmar. Uh, hippos are incredibly dangerous. <laughs> he says the danger index needs to be modified because if you are five meters away from an angry black rhinoceros, that's different than if you are two meters away from a shark, but you're on land. So it's it's kind of funny that uh, somebody would actually put that. Uh, the next little thing, Brian Todd actually said the most dangerous animal on the planet is actually a mosquito because mil- millions of people a year actually die from malaria. I kind of agree with that one. The next little uh, thing, uh, Madhashnun Kati actually said that it's humans, and that's about it. He, he, he was really sticking to, to humans there. All right, that about wraps it up for the Geek Cruft section here. The Geek Cruft, uh, the Caffeination Podcast, rather. Wow, T- tongue-tied and twisted. All right, we have a couple little bits of food and caffeinated bits, our final thought, and then I'll head you out on your day. We have a coffee doodle from a while ago, the uh, Hot Coffee. The Yes, it is. Uh, unfortunately, I've been to been encountering this before it is a uh, fancy coffee people who have such long coffee orders that it takes too long to say it rather than to actually drink it so what i'm one of the things that i'm going to be doing with these coffee doodles and the reason that i kind of mentioned an old doodle is i'm going to be going back over them redoing them and i'm hopefully going to be releasing a calendar for next year because i I like that idea. I think if I can come up with 12 of them, uh, you know, they're, they're 12 kind of interesting little, funny little, uh, punny little uh, coffee doodles, it would make a decent calendar. But even then, uh, hot coffee, when the directions on how you want your coffee take longer to say than it is to drink, when you've stuck behind somebody in Starbucks who wants a soy macchiato with extra whip, two extra shots, and uh, uh, vanilla syrup, and all you want is a black coffee, large they, you know, it, it kind of gets a little bit uh, old when there's three or four of those people all in line behind you. <laughs> all right. 
Next little thing that we got for you here is the most disgusting thing, and I'd like to thank the person who sent this one to me. They didn't want their name mentioned, so I won't. But uh, there are scientists right now who are trying to determine what exactly are we going to do with the food supply on the planet. Now, the problem is that we are rapidly running out of room and arable land to farm. So one of the things that people are looking for is alternative sources of protein. And no, Soylent Green is not people here. This, the Soylent Green is actually cockroaches. Yes, dried cockroaches have been ground up into flour and then made into bread. It's incredibly high in protein and incredibly high in nope. In fact, there's an extra serving of nope along the side of it. I don't care how many smiling scientists you put next to the little uh, uh, bagel-sized loaves that are slightly gray, probably from all the cockroaches. It's never going to equal the amount of nope that you have to put into it. I would probably eat almost anything else except that. I mean, you could put most things in front of me, and I would at least try it at this point in time in my life. Uh, I know if my mom listens, then she would say, hey, that's a big change. But, you know, I, I'd i like to, to consider myself open-minded with that. You know, I, I'll try most things, even with uh, my my uh, current predicament that we're going to discuss in a minute. I, I am lactose intolerant, virulently lactose intolerant. So when I have uh, lactose and I've been dosed with it, you know, I'll end up vomiting or, or throwing up all over the place, and it, it just, it's not pretty, and it, it's, it's not like, you know, oh, I have a stomach problem. It's like, no, this is just, it's like violent. <laughs> so uh, the FDA has apparently decided that all non-cow milk products should no longer be called milk because they don't have lactose, and that is the thing that they're saying. So any alternative milk that is currently on the market, this is a, a real decision from the Fe Food and Drug Administration that says anything that does not have lactose in it should not be marketed as milk because it, you might try and drink something and might determine that, hey, this doesn't have any lactose in it, which is ridiculous because you can get goat's milk and goats don't have lactose or lactase in them, or rather lactose in goat's milk. Yes. Uh, the only animal that has lactose in its milk is cows. So there must be a really good uh, cow lobby out there. Uh, and unfortunately, you can't milk an almond. So I don't know what people are drinking out there, including myself, but... Um, it's no longer going to be called almond milk. Uh, it's still open for debate right now. Almond milk, cashew milk, uh, any of the other stuff, but it's not going to be called milk. It's going to maybe it's being called milk alternative. I don't even know. What's in a name? Almond milk isn't milk, so says the FDA apparently. Now, there's one other thing that we wanted to talk on our way out. Now, previously we had discussed a possible ban on plastic straws. Now, it's kind of funny the different uh, takes that people have had. There's people who said, you yeah, know, this is more of that PC bullcrap that uh, people are just throwing out because they don't like the way things were and they want things to change. Uh, there's other people who are saying, you know what, this is a fantastic idea. There's no reason for uh, these places to actually use as many disposable straws as they do. But there's one thing that nobody really talked about, and that's the straws have their place in the world. And that's from the, the community that supports disabilities. The ADA actually recently put out a, uh, a story that said, hey, wait, wait, wait. There's people with severe motor difficulties that can't pick up the coffee cup and chug it that way. There's people with uh, issues where they need to have that bendy plastic straw 
to be able to actually enjoy any of these beverages. So maybe throwing the, the baby out with the bathwater here is not exactly a good idea. I, I kind of hadn't thought about that. And, I'm, you know, it's pretty embarrassing when you really think about it because or when I think about it because uh, <laughs> I'm one of the people at Temple who's supposed to be working on uh, ADA stuff. I, I'm one of the people who end up getting the... Uh, who end up uh, working with the the different things to to make sure that all of our websites are compliant. And so uh, uh, you'll never find something that has autoplay video or autoplay audio on one of my websites because that's just something I know not to do. So I hadn't even considered it, and I felt a little bit guilty about it. But hey. All right, now our final thought for the day is something that is definitely geeky, definitely techy, and it's something from over at geekygadgets.com, but there's a Roland Go Mixer Pro for smartphones out there right now. I love this idea. Unfortunately, my phone would not be able to use it because it uses an older version of the plug at the bottom of the phone, and my phone uses the USB-C. So this uses a mini USB cord, but there are two microphone inputs on this. There is one uh, line in. There is a line out. There is, There are... Now, let me just read this right from the top to bottom. So there's an instrument line-in, quarter-inch phone type. There's a line-in jack, stereo miniature phone type. There's a line-in stereo miniature phone type in line two. There's a guitar bass jack. It's a quarter-inch phone type, high impedance. There's a plug-in mic jack that supports power, so phantom power. Then there's a combo jack that's an XLR quarter-inch TRS phone, phantom power. So this one goes all the way up to 48 volts, which would be enough to power the microphone that I'm currently using to produce this show. There's also a monitor out and a USB port. So the, the stereo speakers out is one of the things that I have the biggest issue with when you're dealing with just straight USB microphones because unless you're, you're directly plugged into the mixer itself, which I am on this setup, um, there's a lag, and the lag is enough to make it really annoying in order to try and actually vocalize over something. So for only $99, this is a massively awesome <laughs> deal that they're sharing over there. Uh, I don't know if this is a temporary thing or if it's something out there. But uh, this just gets us that much closer to the fact that, hey, you know... Uh, you might not need a computer down the road. You might be able to produce the entire podcast and have it sound remarkably well on your phone. So thought it was pretty cool and wanted to share it with the group. That about wraps it up here for the Caffeination Podcast. I am Paul, and I have been your host. Thanks for listening. The If you are looking for this podcast or any of its other friends, you can find them all lovingly nestled in over at www.caffination.com. All of our social media stuff is listed over at the, at the podcast homepage. Rather. You can now find us in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Blueberry, anywhere else that your traffic and your tales may take you. If you are going to call into our listener line at 215-240-1319, you can leave a direct to voicemail kind of setup. Uh, the other thing that we have is we've started to have people send in story suggestions and ideas, and I love when people do that. So you can either tell me that you want me to share it with your name attached to it, or you don't want me to share it with your name attached to it. So that's, that's fine. Doesn't matter either way. Thank you very much for listening, and stay caffeinated, people.